There's a passage of Scripture that seems so relevant, so pertinent to the weekend like this, where in the midst of the comings and goings, where people are with family and friends, at the same time, we're becoming increasingly reflective about the end of a year and the beginning of a new year. And we need a passage of Scripture that I think gives us tremendous insight into how to be able to review and preview, invest our time wisely and all for the glory of God, and a passage that came to my mind as we were preparing for this time of year is Ephesians chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there with me as Paul in one of his, his prison letters to the people that he loved so dearly, the people in Ephesus, are finding now that Paul, who perhaps as well is monitoring and pondering and reflecting upon the days of his life, challenges them regarding the days of their lives and the way in which we go about managing our time, and it's all to be for the glory of God. So I'd like to begin reading in verse 15. Take it down through verse 21. And here now Paul wrote these words, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we want to look at this and allow it to speak to where we're at at the end of a year, about to begin a new year, and asking what does God have to say about the way in which we use time? How did Jesus use time? And how did Jesus use time for the glory of God? And what can we learn from him? Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thanking you for this Advent season where we had opportunity to be able to, over the course of the weeks, ponder the significance as to why Jesus Christ came into this world. He came to die for our sins. We thank you, Father, that in the fullness of time, you sent your Son. And there's something about the end of the year and the beginning of a new year where we likewise ponder, what does it mean, the fullness of time? Thank you that you are the one who's in control of time. And you see 2013 better than we can ever even understand and see 2012 in retrospect because you stand outside of time, and you're sovereign over it. So what we want to do, Father, from this passage of Scripture, where you very practically and wisely guide us, direct us in how to be wise with regard to the time that you give us, we're asking that our hearts would be open to the teachings of your Word. So now, Father, we're praying that you warm our hearts and continue to engage our minds. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and 
and him only, and praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. President Teddy Roosevelt had gone through a series of incredible decisions where he had to ponder the pros and the cons and the challenges that were coming his way in rapid-fire succession. After one of his cabinet meetings, he took a brief pause and he was collecting his thoughts when one of the cabinet members came up to him and asked him something with regard to the way in which Roosevelt approached the whole issue of maintaining, developing, cultivating wisdom in the midst of his decision-making. His words stand out to me, and they are spoken of in J. Oswald Saunders' book, Spiritual Leadership. Teddy Roosevelt responded, Wisdom is nine-tenths a matter of being wise in time. Most of us, he went on to say, are too often wise after the event. One of our great challenges is to be able to cultivate wisdom before the major events so that we're better prepared when those issues of life come medically, financially, family-wise, in the very personal spheres of our life, where we have drunk deeply from the well of wisdom that's found in God's Word and prepare ourselves effectively for what comes our way in 2013 before it even happens. And this is, in essence, now what Paul is writing about in chapter 5, verse 15, down through verse 21. So we're going to call this little study the way of wisdom, asking that God provide for us the way of wisdom as we see out the old and enter the new, seeking to be able to apply the biblical principles of wisdom to the road that God has placed you and me on. Now, if you long for that and crave that, and there's probably no greater craving in my heart than the craving for wisdom, then what I'd like you to do is to join with me now, and we're going to examine these verses, and I want to draw three significant involvements that are found here that I think relate very well to where we are at in our own personal experience with God in this world. Now the first is found in verse 15 and 16, and we're going to phrase it this way, number one, that the way of wisdom involves managing the opportunities of time. Now what you and I need to do is to begin to break this down and think very carefully, and how does this relate to your experience and my experience whether you're a student, parent, spouse, one who oversees a business or is working within a business, what are these opportunities of time that God is bringing your way? And what impact can you have upon other people? Paul begins now, in prison as he writes, be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Pause there. Because he's challenging you and me now not to be careless, not to be carefree, but to be careful. That's the wording used here. 
with the time that God gives us because time is a gift. It's not to be wasted. Time is to be invested. God provides us this gift, which is temporal, in order that we can live our lives with the whole mindset of what's eternal. Now Paul's thinking this way as he's writing in prison, all for his faith. And so he challenges you and me, be very careful then how you live. Now what captures my attention when we are reading this, this passage, in particular coming across this word live, is that in the original language in the Greek, it's the word utilized for to walk. To walk. Now, when you come across this, time and time again, what God is challenging his people is you and I are to walk in the way of wisdom. For example, in that great wisdom psalm of Psalm chapter 1, in Psalm 1, the psalmist writes these words, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but in his, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now the word of God is the wisdom of God. And it's the word of God that puts us on this path of life, and what's interesting is that if you read carefully through the book of Proverbs, you will find that life is continuously spoken of as way or ways. And the challenge for the believer is to apply wisdom to his or her ways. One of the powerful, powerful teachings in Proverbs, in fact, comes from chapter 13, where in verse 20, God says, He who walks with the wise grows wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. It's the wise parent, for example, who sets a course for their children to walk with the wise to be exposed to people who possess wisdom. I did a year-long internship at Parkside Church where Alistair Begg, a senior pastor, when I was in my 20s, trying to determine the road that God would have me take with my life because the pastor really was not part of my plan. The senior pastor at that time, prior to Alistair Begg, was Dr. Walter Hansen, now a professor of New Testament at a seminary in the United States. His father, Kenneth Hansen, was one of the founders of Service Master Industry, which means literally in service to the master. His father was a brilliant, wise man who seemed to always be out there when I was speaking on a Sunday morning, in the front row, taking notes so that afterwards we could go for a walk, you see. Now, Kenneth went to the same college that I went to, two generations apart. 
as we would go down the roads and walk his son, who's the senior pastor, and I, threesomes, walking together, Kenneth would stop, turn, look at me, and say, okay, Gary, I see as one of the upcoming trends in this culture, homosexuality. If you become a senior pastor, and then he begins to set out a case study, how would you handle that counseling situation? We'd stand there and talk for three, four, five minutes. We'd go on walking, and then he would stop and say, Gary, in the whole realm of medical ethics, when we come to this whole issue of abortion, the issues of what I'm seeing in Europe of euthanasia, as America becomes increasingly tolerant, what issues are you going to take to proactively lead a congregation forward to be able to address the cultural issues head on? And we'd stop and we were thinking biblically, reasoning scripturally, as we continued on the way. I would never claim to be able to ever attain his wisdom. But one thing about the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 20, challenges you and me, is that he who walks with the wise grows wise. And what strikes me here is that Jesus did that. He walked. And as he walked, his disciples were able to grow in wisdom as they traveled with him. And here now is the Apostle Paul, and he's informing you and me, be very careful then how you live, literally how you walk, you see. Carol Schuler lost her leg in a motorcycle accident. Stood out in the large congregation that she was part of. At one point in time, they had an opportunity for people to share their experiences of saving faith, Jesus Christ. Hesitantly, she made her way forward and turned, pivoted on her crutches and said, obviously, I, I don't walk very well. They say there was a hush that overcame the entire auditorium. You see, I was in a motorcycle accident, and I almost died, she said. She paused to regain her composure, and then added, I cannot walk as most of you, but that's not really what's important. More important than the way I walk is with whom I walk. And then she paused and looked at the people and asked, do you walk with Christ? You're going to want to write that little word walk in, right next to the word live. Because this whole matter of living well is walking with. Living well in life means walking with our Lord. Be very careful then how you literally live, or rather walk, but as it reads, live. And now notice the contrast. People who cultivate wisdom are able to produce contrast. Not as unwise, 
but as wise. Now, when you and I begin to explore and expand upon that idea, what we realize then is that wisdom is the property of God. God is distinguished, you see, by His wisdom. But furthermore, wisdom is the characteristic of Jesus. If you were to be reading in Luke chapter 2, you would have come across verse 40, and again verse 52, where you and I are informed that Jesus Christ grew in wisdom. And furthermore, when he was ministering in his hometown in Nazareth, we're informed in Matthew chapter 13, where in verse 54, the people of that setting were amazed at the wisdom that was so evident in his words. Wisdom is to be a distinguishing feature of the people of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, we're informed that Solomon had wisdom. In Acts 7, verse 10, we're informed that Joseph possessed wisdom. In Acts 7, verse 22, we're informed that Moses was trained in wisdom. And what fascinates us is that wisdom is connected with the leadership of the early church. We're in Acts chapter 6, and in verse 3, the filling of the Holy Spirit was also tied to and connected with the characteristic of wisdom. Now what God is telling you and telling me then is that we and I need to be able to understand clearly the biblical value of incorporating wisdom in the way of life that we're on. Be very careful then, not careless, how you live, literally walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Look what comes next in verse 16. Making the most of every opportunity. The words making the most of every opportunity came with the idea of redeeming the time. Literally, to buy it up. If you were standing in a store in the midst of the Christmas season selecting a, a gift for a loved one, maybe you stopped and you looked at something and you turned it one way, turned the other way, pondered whether or not that's something that would make a difference in the heart of the loved one. Now time is a commodity. We're being told here there's a purchase involved. Now, in biblical principles, God is the owner, and we are the managers of time. The psalmist informs us of this very fact. We're in Psalm chapter 90, Psalm 90, verse 12. We're challenged, teach us to number our days aright. Not our years. Our days. That we may gain what? a heart of wisdom. Take that and begin to ponder Jesus' usage of time. In John chapter 2, he's at this wedding in Cana, and his mother wants him to be able to reveal to others his capacities, his abilities. Jesus says, 
my hour has not yet come. In other words, he would not allow other people to take ownership of time. God is the owner. We're called to be managers. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, so the Son had to submit his time to the Father's will, to the Father's time. In chapter 7 of John, furthermore, there's a point where Jesus is again being pressured by his inner circle to reveal himself, and he says, my time has not yet come. If we do not become biblical managers of time, others then will seek to become owners of our time. But when we have a clear understanding that God is owner and we are managers of the resources that God has provided us, one of those tremendous resources is time. He doesn't say, teach us to number our years. Teach us to number our days. And the Hebrew word there for number is an accounting term describing careful analysis and audit. Now, when we are at the end of a year, 2012, and about to venture in 2013, we're not going to waste 2012. We're going to invest even the memories of 2012 and transport them into ministries for 2013. And we need to learn the experience that Esther was given in her relationship to her relative Mordecai, who when the Jewish people were being threatened, and there was a particular man who wanted the Jewish people annihilated, Esther hears these profound words being delivered to her in Esther chapter 4 by her relative, after Esther had been made queen of the land. Listen to this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, she was hesitant about her role, her responsibilities. and He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. Listen to what comes next. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. You adoptive parents. Who knows whether you have come to this position of parenting for such a time as this. Going into your senior year in college, maybe about to graduate and pondering what comes next. Who knows whether or not God has positioned you as a senior to influence underclassmen in some very unique ways for such a time as this. Have you considered the relationship of positioning to opportunity 
where you are the manager and God is the owner of opportunity as it's related to time. And this is a, this is a commodity. Have you pondered the tempo of Jesus in his management of time? Martha and Mary were wondering, where's Jesus when Lazarus died? We thought he'd be here by now. But Jesus managed his temple in order to get there after death rather than prior to death. The sudden motion, a series of events that would argue clearly that resurrection is tied to Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life precipitating then the process whereby Christ would then go to the cross. In other words, he managed his temple in accordance to the will of the Father. Are you managing your temple well? T-E-M-P-O. As you're thinking about the days of life that God is giving you and how you're supposed to be using that in a way in which in which God receives, you see, the glory. And I thought about that when I came across in one of the biographies in our library at home of Charles Coleman, a great missionary of overseas, who before he had even gone overseas was known for impacting others with the gospel. His wife tells us that while he was working in the States, in less than six months, he had personally led 75 of his fellow workers to the Lord. All were handpicked fruit. This personal work was done in odd moments, as he felt that his time belonged to his company. Not once was there the slightest bit of cynicism or criticism that business was being neglected. His was a mind further removed from the dogma that when a man becomes religious, he must close his ledger, put in a rest on the wheels of industry, and bid his neighbor and work farewell. No, there were odd moments every night when it was not necessary for the people to be kept steadily at the telegraph key, and he kept an open eye for those moments. She writes, He who hoards and turns into account odd moments, half hours, gaps between times, achieves results which will astonish those who have not mastered the secret of God being the owner and us being the managers of the time he gives us. Is 2012 time wasted? Or time invested. Here's a second involvement. The number two, the way of wisdom involves understanding the will of the Lord. Once again, wise people cultivate contrasts. Here's the second contrast in this, in this paragraph. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, through the book of Proverbs, time and time again, God challenges us with regard to not going the way of the fool. But consider, then, the will of the Lord. Now, wisdom, as it relates to our walk, wisdom, as it relates to God's will, 
gets tied together. And you become a more effective parent, you become a more effective worker, you become a more effective employer, you become a more effective person when you see the connections of all these ideas. One of the key models for me in this whole matter of grappling with the will of God, and he's told, he's told us here, understand what the Lord's will is, comes from Jesus' critical experience in Gethsemane. Do you remember it? In Gethsemane, Jesus falls with his face to the ground, prays, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Moments later, a second time he cries out, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In verse 45, he returns to the disciples and says to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. That's time conscious. The Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now you heard me say the word rise. Look very carefully at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The same word is used in Ephesians 5, verse 14 about waking up that is used by Jesus to challenge his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wake up! Bridge together the way of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and see how all this comes together. And what can you learn from this experience as Jesus Christ is being challenged to manage this opportunity designed by the Father where he had repeatedly said, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come. But then he reaches the point of saying, my time has now come. And what do we learn from that? is people who seek to understand better the ways, the wisdom, and the will of the Lord. Livingston said, I'd rather be in the heart of Africa in the will of God than on the throne of England out of the will of God. So if you noticed how unseized time unmanaged time, comes under the influence of the most dominant people in our lives. And if we are unwilling to recognize that the dominant one ought to be God the Father, and we are to be managers of what God owns, we will miss out on the tremendous opportunity of managing opportunities effectively for the glory of God. Jesus learned how to adjust his temple, as in the case of the issue of Lazarus. Jesus learned to balance the private and the public. Jesus was able to distinguish what is primary and what is secondary when he informed his mother, no, the time has, in essence, not yet 
come. And so we are called to give an account for our days as we seek to understand the will of the Lord. Now, once we've done that, then we're better prepared to be able to embrace what comes next, which is the third significant involvement. It's in 18 down through verse 21, which in essence is one extended sentence in the original language. It's fascinating. The number three, what I want you to notice here with me is that the way of wisdom involves being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 18, he says, and here's your third contrast, do not get drunk on wine. A fascinating phrase going into New Year's Eve. Now, where do you go with this one in light of what Paul is saying here? When he says, do not get drunk with wine, he in essence is saying, now, consider under whom or under what you come under the influence. Wine is a power. Wine is not a person. Our minds then ought to go back, let's say, to Proverbs chapter 23, where the writer poses these series of questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? I think of the battered woman I've counseled through the years. Who has needless bruises? I look in the eyes of the man in the early hours of the morning. Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. God delivers a command. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. God tells us of the results. In the end, it bites like a snake, poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. That's not the way of wisdom. The wisdom does not live in the realm of confusing things. The way of wisdom involves in connecting things, contrasting things, not confusing things. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 1 down to verse 13, as the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, some began cynically to look at them and say, state to one another, they're drunk with wine. Now notice how Jesus most likely contrasts this for us. Empowering Paul on that road to Damascus to deliver these thoughts. Paul now says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What's the difference between wine and Spirit? The Holy Spirit? 
wine is a power. Holy Spirit is a person. What they share in common is influence and control. The question is not how can I get more of it, but rather how can he get more of me? Which fills me, influences me to think wisely in this world of confusion where life seems to come apart. So you know what he does for you and me? Paul keeps it simple. He draws for us in rapid-fire succession five distinguishing features of people who are filled with the Spirit they're going to appear in rapid-fire succession on the screen. Check them out. And notice the phrasing. Here should be some New Year's resolutions for 2013. First, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Notice now I've included in brackets I-N-G. Why? The Bible student knows that that word in the original language is a participle. It should end in an I-N-G. What also interests me, and I've underlined this, this is to be done to one another. In other words, people filled with the Spirit are very much aware of their connection to others. Notice the next one. Singing and making. Notice the brackets, I-N-G endings. Music in your heart, but I've underlined it, to the Lord. Now, the previous one was to one another. That's very horizontal, isn't it? This one is very vertical, to the Lord. Now what you're doing here is you are understanding that the way of wisdom has you deeply connected horizontally and vertically, relationally, and we need the filling of the Spirit to be able to follow God's will in the way of wisdom in the home, at work, in the community, in the church. Go to what comes next here. And notice your attitude, always giving thanks to God the Father. Each of these has the little word to, T-O in it. It's very directional. It's saying that you and I are to be very relational. And now there's to be this attitude of giving thanks to God the Father, not in some things in 2013. Everything. Because even the disappointments may very well be God's appointments. And we don't even recognize yet where it will lead. So we thank Him. We thank Him. Even if it appears to be a negative. And watch how it's turned into a positive. One more. Submitting to one another. There it is again, underlined. Out of reverence for Christ. And now you have two to the Lord's, two to one another's, verticals and horizontals, intersecting and allowing you to take these five ING statements, pull them together, and ask yourself now, Am I under the influence of the Holy Spirit or am I not?
Is God in control or am I attempting to take control of life? And how we answer those questions could very well determine the way in which we appropriate and apply these resolutions to what's coming next. But when we manage the way of wisdom effectively and do it in a way that brings glory to God, then we're better able to understand clearly how to respond to the Teddy Roosevelt's of this world who said that wisdom is nine-tenths a matter of being wise in time. The problem is, most of us are too often wise after the event. Jesus, filled with wisdom, went to the cross. The apostles, filled with the Spirit, spoke with wisdom so that you and I would be able to walk in the way of wisdom and all for the glory of God. Let's stand together. You are the owner of time. We're managers. Pray that each one here is going to be able to, in light of that and the time pressures that we're facing, be able to distinguish what's primary and what's secondary. Then 2013, that stressed out young mother, that overworked individual, that physically challenged body, will be able to adjust temple of life according to the timing of the Lord. Then when it comes to the dominant people who are continuously crying out for our attention, that we'll be able to pause and remind ourselves who is owner and who is manager and manage time in such a way that ministers to that heart and still brings glory to you to be able to know how to be proactive and when to be reactive, when to be directive and when to be reflective. But through it all, Father, I pray that the result is we're going to look back over the course of 2013 and say it was the way of wisdom and it was done according to the will of God. So if there's anyone here who's just prone to jump into the fray of things without thinking scripturally, biblically, effectively. How to apply truth to life. Show us, Father, how time relates to eternity. Teach us to number our days. We want to give back to you a heart of wisdom. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.